Amen. Kelsey, May's calling for you. <laughs> All right, good morning, everybody. Hope you're okay. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, talking about one of the most underrated words in the Scripture, stewardship. Ooh, I know. You feel the electricity as soon as I say the word, uh, because that, that word maybe doesn't always hit the same high mark uh, as a lot of the concepts that we talk about on a week-to-week basis. But I'm going to make the case from Scripture, every place you see this talked about, you see giant, exciting words. You see a lot of joy and a lot of happiness. My hope today is that we can finish out our little series on going pro in a way that will hopefully, long-term, deliver results. Results that actually change the lived experience of your week. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 today. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or tap your way there. If not... Please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. And as you're thinking about uh, stewardship, like, like I said, we, with this concept of going pro, the whole idea with the, the series was that we needed to turn the speed up. We're, we're a kind of church, we talk about belong before you believe, we're the kind of church that wants to be a very delicate, soft landing place for people who are exploring Christianity. That's always still the case. That does not mean that we're okay with Christians being very laissez-faire in their walk with Christ. We don't have that option biblically. The Scripture talks about a race. It talks about a war. It talks about a song. It talks about how you are marching. You're doing it to win a prize. You're doing it to change the world. You're doing it to glorify the Holy One. You're doing it for the most exalted motives possible. And yet for many people, their Christianity is a sort of haphazard affair. For many people, the the thing that they do for their church is a pretty limp effort. And I think that can be our fault because we don't always call you to more. Well, this whole series has been trying to address that idea that, no, 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 you want to be full throttle. You want to push as hard as you can to do what God has given you to do, the works that he has laid out for you to do. And yet, as we talk about stewardship, uh, my first thought is, ew. Because the word stewardship, often I I think of just a series of repeated uh, tasks, none of which have a lot of like real excitement to them. I think about with stewardship, having a, a, a stewardship over our house, over our budget, over our yard. We've made commitments this year to try and do better with all three of those in particular, and it's not gone great on the, on the surface. It's a, it's a horrible sort of specter that looms over your weekend because you have all week to do as much as you can, and then you're always looking forward to Saturday, and then you wake up Saturday morning, and, oh, you've got to paint something or you got to clean something out, or you got to redo something. I remember when Rachel and I got married, that was something that uh, hit me early on as a distinction between our two personalities, was that it was Saturday, we lived in this tiny apartment, there's nothing that we need to do, we don't even own the space, and she woke up, ready to get to work. She started talking about all the stuff we're going to do on Saturday, and I said, babe, but it's Saturday, and she went, yeah, it's Saturday. And I realized we had two very different ideas of what Saturday was. For me, Saturday was like 
non-activity in the extreme. For her, Saturday, and this is a quote, is the day you can get done all that stuff you didn't get to do during the week. She said, you can get done all that stuff you didn't get to do during the week. Do you see the distinction? She's pumped about it. But I think she had the wiser course. It took me 10 years, but I'm getting there. This year, we committed in January, part of our New Year's resolutions, that we were going to make the house look a little nicer. I've been hanging out with Dickie. Dickie's house is clean as a pin. He has become a disciple of Marie Kondo. He has very well organized his home and then experiences the joy of that stewardship. We tried to follow in his footpath, uh, in his, his path, and honestly, we've got a lot of joy out of it. Our house now has a lot more space, and the stuff that's there is stuff that we have a lot more either use from or, or care of, enjoyment of. When it comes to our budget, we went on a date this weekend, and we spent a little more than we normally would. But we actually knew that we could. A little bit of discipline over a long period of time allows us to the place where we can do some stuff that beforehand we wouldn't have been able to do. My yard was always a place of uh, terror. It was like slowly being taken over by all these different weeds and smells. Well, by God's grace, there's a slow amount of health that's coming. And as that slow amount of health finally starts to land, there's a joy in going out into our yard. There's a joy in having these bay windows that look out on a small but slightly more well-kept green space. And the scripture is calling you to this kind of investment, this kind of slow, constant growth and investment. So today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to ask about what we do, how we use our time and our money. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We talked about how Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, how there's some tension, some friction there. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, there's been some back and forth with this church There's been some healing, some steps forward, but also some steps back. And yet, as you get closer to the end of this second book of Corinthians, he's talking about the things he wants them to do, the things that he has seen them do, and he wants them to increase in. And he says this, The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God's able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, there is effort there. There's something you've got to do. But do you read the way in which those ideas are addressed in Scripture? This idea of giving, this idea of sowing is also clouded in this language of blessing. The word bountifully. Do you ever use that word? Every day you go to Sam's and you come back and you realize that to get blueberries you had to buy a bucket of blueberries. And you say, we have a bounty of blueberries. You don't say that, but that's the case. The idea is overflowing, generously provided. He says things like abound. The word lavish is one that I love. To lavish grace on my children. The way that God lavishes his grace on us. The way that he shoves it in. There's like no more space. It's coming out of our nose. There's bountiful return for this cheerful 
not reluctant, but cheerful giving. I think it's talking about our resources. I think it's talking about our time. And I think it's talking about our money. Now, what are we supposed to do here? Well, the goal in the way that we use both our time and our money is, of course, the same goal that we have over all things. It's to glorify God by doing the work that he's given us. For Hope Church, that is to plant churches and make disciples in this state and beyond. That means that your money and your time should be dictated by a goal of giving God glory by doing the work that he's laid out for you to do. That has an individual component, who you are, what you have been given, but it also has a corporate component, what we are, what Hope Church has been given to do. Half the battle, though, is just having that goal before you, knowing that there is a best way to use your time and your money and beginning to prioritize both those things towards that goal, the kingdom goal of enjoying God's love and making sure everybody you get to know enjoys that same love. Now, it's got to be a disciplined effort. You may think that, it may seem that when you start to do these things, there'll be a momentum that just builds and builds and builds. But unfortunately, what we see as pastors is that we have to preach the same message over and over again because there's a deterioration that takes place. You have to get prodded again and again and again. Many of us have gone through the fads of different diets. Why? Because you, you have this moment, you have this prodding, the goals before you, you think about what your pants might look like, and then you go for it. Some good things, but if you don't keep on it, it goes away. And then the next diet comes with the next promise and the next idea and the next excitement and your community members that are doing it with you. And you think, oh, maybe I could do this. And so you start to do it and you get excitement and you start to grow again. And then what happens? Why this ebb and this flow? Well, it says in Ephesians 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because why? The days are evil. You can see this all throughout a fallen world, but the idea is that things without effort are going down, not up. There's a deterioration. There's a disillusion. Things are pulling apart. Things are getting Worse. The only thing that's going to change that is the active effort, the constant pushing, the disciplined structure of a kingdom individual working towards kingdom ends. Things are tending towards this breakdown. It is going to happen with your body. We can talk about diet. We can talk about fitness. But hello, it's all going to end badly. You see these very, very fit people and you think, wow, very impressive. But you know where they're going to land. We have to look beyond that. You think about your mind, and we talked about how you have to renew your mind, because if you don't hold your mind to the Scriptures, you think about Psalm 1. If you're not meditating on God's words and His ways, you're going to pull away. You're going to disillusion. You're going to tend towards disorder. You're going to tend towards uselessness. Our society's that way. Our, our social component here at Hope Church. You get it. If you're not actively calling each other, texting each other, pushing each other, not only do you fall away from each other, but even you can stay close. But if you're not pushing that person towards Christ, 
your, your, your relationship automatically becomes about sort of the lowest common denominator. Why? Well, the days are evil. You have to allot your time around. You have to push your financial goals towards the priorities that God has before you. You have to keep them before you. How great would it be if we could say something once, really believe it, really get it, and move on? But it doesn't work that way. There's a constant reminder that's going on. A really great pastor said, and I think he was right, that even good preachers only have about five sermons. <laughs> so let's say I've got about four. You have heard my sermons over and over and over again. I take comfort, though, in knowing that, honestly, we kind of need that. The days are evil. We have to push ourselves if we're going to get this growth in stewardship. Why? Well, there's, there's a lot that goes into the background or the motivation for pushing forward these goals. I think in our culture, and this is not just Utah, this is our culture writ large, it's very difficult to do this without what we would call legalism. Meaning, I'm going to do this good thing, but I'm doing it for a reward rather than from grace. Meaning, uh, I had a conversation with a lady who'd been coming to Hope Church for a little while, and she came from a tradition where she gave a very specific amount of money, and she gave it very, very faithfully. But she had left that tradition, and now she was a part of Hope Church, and she just continued that practice. And it's great. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. That's, that's money that we're going to use for the kingdom. But as I started to talk to her more and more, I started to understand that the reason that she was giving was the same in that tradition and this one. But that won't fly. The reason that we give, as described in these verses, is incredibly important. It's all the difference between religion and relationship. The reason that you give he talks about joyful, overflowing, joyful giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Not somebody who can paste on a smile, but somebody who receives cheer from the act of their giving. And this venerable lady, she was giving, expecting that gift to somehow work towards her, I don't know, holiness? God's going to somehow be impressed by it? Things are suddenly going to become better. God's going to somehow pay off her debt because of what she's giving. And so, and I don't know if the other pastors would have agreed with me. I don't know how wise this was. But I actually said, hey, just don't give for a while. <laughs> First time it's ever happened in the history of the world. The pastor said, don't give. But I told her, just don't, don't give for a while. And you could see in her eyes that there was some total disconnect. It was like I said, let's go to the strip club or something. It was this... this absolute moral flip-flop of her universe. She didn't understand what I meant. And when I saw that it like crushed her brain for me to say that, I was like, but I mean, you can still give if you want to. Uh, but, but the reason for your giving, the reason for your stewardship is incredibly important to God. Why you save, why you give, why you serve is incredibly important. It all comes back to how he has impacted you. 
Is God an example that you're working towards? Or is God a good father who has loved and forgiven you? He's adopted you and put you into his family, and now you do things in his family's way. There's very, very different um, motivations. And biblically, you get in the Old Testament these ideas that they were giving 10%, and then they had all these extra ways in which they had to give, but that was part of a political system. It was part of like a nation state. How do you then get there in the New Testament? Is 10% still the goal? Is 10% the ceiling? Is 10% the floor? What do you do? And it's a little difficult in Scripture to maybe nail that down. I think Jesus supports the concept of 10% in the Bible. But you don't have this harping on it in the New Testament because the whole idea of the church is not built on these rules that you're going to follow seamlessly. The idea is that by understanding God's grace towards you, your heart is going to overflow in a generosity. And I think in God's wisdom, you're going to see that there's really nothing better to do with your money. Psalm 39, Scripture says, "'O Lord, make me know the end of my days and what is the measure of my days.'" Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, I have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You can have a joyful idea with your giving because if you agree with God's perspective on things, if you agree with God's perspective on what you should be doing with your time, you have the joy of realizing that you're doing something that actually does matter. Why I'm doing it? I'm doing it out of this grace. I'm doing it as a reaction to his love. But that I'm doing it is creating all kinds of meaning in my world. If you have any other goal in life, any other goal for your time or your money, you're going to see that it is short-sighted. It is ultimately, and this is the whole point of Ecclesiastes, meaningless. It says here, somebody else is going to gather what you have put together. You heap it up and then you die. And then it gets handed off to who knows who. Solomon, who talked about this a ton in the Proverbs, lived it out in that. He received from uh, David a pretty stable kingdom. He increased it greatly through his wisdom... And then he hands it off to his idiot son, who in like 10 minutes sees the whole thing broken in half and the wealth flow out like water. What's the point? You have to be prepared, not for a short time, but for an eternal perspective. If there is no eternity, if these things that we're thinking and hoping for end at death, then they are ultimately meaningless. Famously, there's a guy named Voltaire. He was a writer in the beginning of the um, Renaissance. And he was a famous person because he was not only not a Christian, but he, he found Christianity to be foolish. He wrote it off totally. And yet, when he came to die, he told the doctor, I'll give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months more life. And the nurse who was caring for him in his final moments, listening to his cries, said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another infidel die. What is she saying? 
She's saying that this Voltaire guy was clear-eyed enough to realize that if there is no God and if there is no eternity, if there is no greater meaning to the things that you're doing, then death is the ultimate stopping point. It makes foolish all of your other attempts. And yet, if you are ready for death, if you are able to look beyond death at something eternal, then that eternal thing can reach back and not only take the important things and make them more important and more solid, it can take the the trivial things and make them beautiful. In all things at all times, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, meaning that his eternal purposes are wheedling their way into your life and into your heart in every single thing that's happening. Meaning begins to erupt. Vitality begins to erupt in every moment of what you're going through. Whether it's just stupid stuff, casual stuff, repeated stuff, or of course the really big and important stuff. That's where you get this idea that my time is worth a ton. I remember a pastor that I worked with, the guy that I grew up under, He said this, and it was sort of like a business principle. But he said, you always want to hire people that walk fast. Really? Why do you want to hire people that walk fast? He's like, because you want to hire people that have something to do. The busy people, those are the people you look for, and those are the people you give more to because they've got some level of meaning. That's not infallible. You have some people just walk fast. I don't know. But the idea holds true. In the church, we are looking at the faces of those who will exist for an eternity. When we walk around and we see people in our city, even if we're only seeing from the nose up, we're seeing people who exist forever. And my work on their behalf to have them come to know God is the most important thing that I could possibly be doing with my time. It's the most important thing that I could possibly giving my money to. When I think about the faces of the people as they come up out of the water of baptism, and I think about how those faces have gone from death to life, not because of baptism, but it's showing you the picture, I'm thinking about how it is all worth it. It's worth every effort. It's worth every sacrifice to think about how those faces will glow in the reflected light of God's face. For eternity. And to think that you could have something to bring that about. It's majestic. It pays huge dividends. And it brings in a ton of joy even to the slow, monotonous, daily task of stewardship. Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Do you see what God's doing? He's just waiting. He's ready. He is this dump truck of blessing that is ready to land on your head. He can't wait for you to give him one marshmallow, and he's going to dump a whole bag on your head. He can't wait for you to give him one hour and he's going to just pour out meaning and joy in your life. No, if you give to the church, you're not going to just suddenly become wealthy. That's not what we're talking about. Open your eyes to something bigger than money. If you will give up, 
your time and your money to God, you will find that He has so much more to give you back. There's a joy that's being promised there. Jesus is saying to you, not just men, and if for some reason you don't have the same theology I do about Scripture, and you say, well, Paul wasn't Jesus. This was Jesus, and He said that He is going to give to you in good measure. And if you've got one little cup that He's going to give you, He's going to take His blessing and He's going to press it down. He's going to shake it to make sure there's no more space, and then He's going to fill it up so that it runs over. It's the same thing God's been saying from the beginning. You go back to Psalm 23, which David wrote hundreds of years before Christ, and he talks about it. And even in the, in the shadow of the valley of death, you're going to set a table before me. You're going to anoint my head with oil, and my cup is going to run over. So much joy. Why don't we want it? My encouragement to you today is to take one step. Map it out. Have in your head a goal. This is what I want to do. I want to be a cheerful giver. That means that today I'm going to start. I'm going to take my time and I'm going to take my money. I'm going to look at how I'm using those currently and I'm going to make a change for the kingdom. Build in your head. Map it out and say, okay, if I make this change now, I can make this change then. And then slowly here and then here and in two years and in five years and in ten years... Pick a number. Make it systematic. We're always encouraging people to do some kind of automatic giving because if you will simply give as you have committed to give, Hope Church will have more than enough money for a lot of the things we're currently doing. Uh, That's not a growth in giving. If you will just give what you have already committed to give. We can look at the numbers. We can see that somebody was giving very regularly and they just missed a month or they just forgot something. And then they start giving that same amount again. If you just take out those misses... All of a sudden, we have a lot more money to be hiring people, to be bringing people, to be giving out resources. These Gospel of John's we're giving you for free. Why? Anything to see churches planted and disciples made. Map it out. Make a small change today. You're going to have some momentum after this service, I pray. Use that some momentum, that small momentum to take a step. Say, in my time, daily, I'm going to start with that Bible reading app. It doesn't take long. Maybe you say, that that John Reader. I'm going to pull out that John Reader, and I'm going to work through it five minutes a day for the next three weeks. You're already doing that? Fantastic. Double it. Make some small change that you're going to do today, and then tell somebody about it. Make it real. Find somebody that'll ask you about it. Not hold it over your head and be like wicked and whip you with it, but really just try to encourage you and say, hey, listen, this is something that I, he talked about and I think I'm going to try to do. This is what it looks like for me. Will you hold me accountable? It would bless my soul to get text messages this afternoon about stuff you're going to do, small steps you're going to do. And don't be like me. I often say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to memorize the New Testament. And then you memorize two verses and quit. Take some manageable, realistic step. And then watch joy flow in, watch meaning flow in, and take a bigger step and a bigger step. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would make your gospel clear to us, the gospel that saves us, that gives us motivation by grace and by love rather than just fear of punishment. 
being pulled away from you forever. That's our state. And yet, Jesus has made a way for us to be with you for all time, Father. Please bring us to yourself. And don't let us commit to just flowing away. Those small daily losses, those small daily um, defeats where we give up our time and we give up our money to what doesn't avail for eternity. Make us a people who work hard and then begin to work harder. And not out of guilt, but because you have pressed down, you have shaken up, you have filled up and flowed over joy to your people. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.